This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for January 20, 2020. Welcome to the first podcast of 2020. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? My guest in this podcast knows exactly what some of you out there should be doing. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast. And you'll, you'll notice on our website, one of the things that we push is criminal liability for uh, tobacco industry executives for, for putting this stuff on the market to begin with. Expand on that a little bit, that you would literally put tobacco executives in prison for having sold cigarettes. Exactly. And we're, we, we're pushing it for manslaughter. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. I thought that women, we've made a lot of progress towards equality, and we're allowed to vote. And I think So this is a famous clip of Ellen DeGeneres on her TV show talking about some ridiculous products aimed at women. I saw something that makes me think we still have a little bit of ways to go. It's a new product from Bic, the pen company, and they have a new line of pens called Bic for Her. And... This is totally real. Ellen is a pretty funny character, but she doesn't really need to do too much work to get a laugh at the idea of pens, especially for women. Can you believe this? We've been using man pens all these years. But this clip refers to one trope that was going around a while back called the pink tax. And they're just like regular pens, except they're pink, so they cost twice as much. That is absolutely true as well. The worst part is they don't come with any instructions. So, like, how do they expect us to learn how to write with them, you know? I was reading the back of the pack. Well, I had a man read the back of the package to me. And it said it's designed to fit a woman's hand. This is all true. I'm not making any of this up. The idea was that products aimed at women were having their prices jacked up by the evil patriarchy so that women had to pay more than men for the same products. The whole idea was really just a clickbait thing, and it was confused as to whether it referred to products that were marketed at women's preferences or products that women needed to be different to men's products because of their physiology. Ellen's example is a pretty clear case of a product that you can literally pay any price you like for. You can go to a discount store and buy packs of dozens of pens for a dollar or so, or you can spend hundreds of dollars for a single premium pen. I found one pen for sale online that costs more than $5,000, but hey, it's got free shipping. And all of those pens do pretty much the same job. 
what you write won't be any better because you wrote it with a pen that costs thousands of times more than the cheapest pen out there. But why does this extreme price difference exist? Surely the laws of the market should flatten out the prices. Well, clearly they don't. Because here's the secret of capitalism. If you're selling pork bellies or currency futures, supply and demand sets the prices. It's a true marketplace. But if you're buying a pen because you want to sign a card that you're sending to someone, do you shop around? Of course not. What sets the price is what the market will bear. What people will pay without complaining too much. If the pen costs a dollar, will you go to the next store to see if they're selling it cheaper? No. And even if you know that the next store sells it for only 50 cents, will you go there if you're already in the place that sells it for a dollar? Very unlikely. And the manufacturers and retailers know this. They even do market testing to see what price they can get away with charging and build their whole product around that information. That's why women's shampoo costs more than men's, because women are willing to pay more for it. That's also why men's cars and home stereo systems cost more than women's, because men are willing to pay more for them. And before you ask, yes, there are such things, marketers don't write that on the label, but those markets are strongly gendered. And that brings me to a campaign that did have a bit more sense to it, but was still misguided. Value-added tax, called VAT, or VAT, is a sales tax in all EU countries, and it's pretty high, in some countries up to 25%, but typically around 20%. And in most EU countries, that sales tax was charged on tampons and other women's hygiene products. There are active campaigns to have it removed from these products because they are regarded, reasonably enough, as necessities. From the start of this year, 2020, that campaign was successful in Germany. The tax there was 19%, and it's been cut to just 7%. So a win for women, right? Not quite. As soon as the VAT was cut on these products... The manufacturers, it's reported, moved to increase the prices to compensate and bring the retail price back to what it was before the tax cut. So instead of this being a tax cut for women, it was a tax cut for the producers. Because the price of consumer products isn't really set by the cost of production. It's set by what the consumers are willing to pay. This isn't even a secret. IKEA, the massive Swedish furniture company, say that the first thing they design on their products is the price tag, and everything else flows from that. The point is that, particularly when it comes to market forces, it's hard, it's nearly impossible, to do anything that doesn't have unintended consequences. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. 
On the line, I have Chris Bostick. Chris is the Deputy Director for Policy of ASH, the organization called Action on Smoking and Health. I'm guessing, Chris, you're not big into smoking. What do you have against smoking? So I'm actually against cigarettes. Uh, smoking is a, is a behavior that's brought on by addiction. So the, mm-hmm. the reason I hate cigarettes is that they kill when used as intended. And it's that simple. Okay. Um, surely there are lots of other drugs out there and other substances that are maybe not as unhealthy, but pretty unhealthy. Why do you focus particularly on cigarettes? Uh, for I guess for two reasons. One is that as intended part. Most mm. other products only kill or cause me- me- health harm when they're abused. And that goes for you know alcohol or fatty foods. You know We can have a hamburger a week and probably be okay. It's just when you have a hamburger every day, it's bad for you. And that's just you know too much. Uh, whereas there's no safe use, a level of use for cigarettes or tobacco. And the other thing is the addiction. Uh, people don't have a choice. Most people that uh, are, become adult smokers were addicted when they became adults. And we don't let children make decisions, lifelong decisions. They can't sign contracts. They can't get married without their parents' permission. We, we certainly can't think that they have uh, consented to be addicted when they start when they're, say, 12. Okay, I get that point, and that's pretty important. And that's a good reason to make sure that children do not smoke. But adults do lots of things which are potentially going to shorten their lives, not least mountain climbing or water skiing or other hazardous sports. Would you accept that if adults want to smoke, that's their right? I would say that yes, but the problem is how will we ever know if they actually want to smoke or if they're addicted? I mean, virtually no adult starts smoking after they turn after they become of age. Ninety-five uh, percent before eighteen, virtually all of them before they're twenty-one. So I'm not sure how we could know that someone has properly consented to become addicted. And you know, from a more philosophical standpoint, I I don't know the answer to this, but but can someone actually consent to be addicted? You know, when, when you talk about legal consent, normally any kind of consent that cannot be withdrawn is invalid. So I can't, I say can't sign a contract saying I will be your slave for life. The, the, no court will uphold that because I can't ever take it back. So when it comes to consent and addiction, there are a lot of unanswered questions here. And I also want to focus also on, on the, the, the wrong that's being done here. The wrong is not being done by smokers. The wrong is being done by the tobacco industry by putting a product on the market that they know will addict and kill most of their consumers. Okay, but hold on for a second with that. Sure, putting aside that, and that's, you know, that's a serious issue, the addiction in particular, but there are people out there who choose not even to not even attempt to give up smoking, and they may not want to do that. And I can see one of the things on your website on the section that's called Paths to Zero, and I'm guessing that zero, you have zero on that, zero people dying of tobacco, but I guess that also means zero people smoking. And one of the headlines that you're promoting is end the commercial sales of cigarettes. That is surely stepping into the region where you're infringing people's rights, isn't it? Uh, Potentially. And it all again comes down to the addiction. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the word rights. It's a human rights lens that Ash works through. And when you really examine the tobacco epidemic and the actions of the tobacco industry through that, the the human rights lens, and there's a lot of different human rights, including freedom of choice and liberty and things like that. But when you really examine that, you come out the other side with two things. 
one, that governments have to get this stuff off the market. They shouldn't be allowing it. They're supposed to be protecting their people from things like this. And the second is that there should, should be something in place to allow victims to seek justice. And you'll, you'll notice on our website, one of the things that we push is criminal liability for uh, tobacco industry executives for, for putting this stuff on the market to begin with. Expand on that a little bit, that you would literally put tobacco executives in prison for having sold cigarettes. Exactly. And we're, we, we're pushing it for manslaughter. And there is actually a case pending in France right now. We're waiting for the uh, administrative judge to decide whether to, uh, to move further. Okay. Um, can you understand how some people, particularly in a context where, for example, marijuana has been legalized in huge swathes of the United States and in the whole of Canada, can you understand that people might get the feeling that this is perhaps more of a Puritan agenda than a health agenda, then sure, yeah, you know, smoking is harmful. And sure, probably most people who smoke would like to quit, but not all of them. And even the ones who would like to quit, but don't, are making a choice in that they don't commit the amount of psychological and intellectual and personal resources to quitting that they need to. And that's a that's a choice that they're making, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And we should always be in earnest when we talk about banning the sale of something. Uh, I, I, I have a little bit of a libertarian streak in me myself. And for me, the definition of liberty is the ability to do anything you want, provided it's not harming other people. Mm -hmm. And I get how a smoker would say, well, that applies to me. And it does. But it, if, if we put that in the context of what the tobacco industry is doing, they do not have that liberty, the liberty to put something on the market they know is going to addict and kill. Oh, but that's just a second-order effect. You're just saying, I'm going to, going to limit the liberty of smokers by limiting the liberty of those who supply them with cigarettes. It, it does end up having that impact, yes. And I should, I should point out that our Project Sunset is the campaign that you're talking about. It's, a, it's global and, and in the U.S. Uh, we are trying to get rid of the sale of commercial tobacco products, not the possession or use. So if, there will never be a time when a police officer asks you what's in your pocket if they're suspected as tobacco. If you want to grow tobacco, if you want to give tobacco away to people, that's fine. We're not against indigenous use of tobacco, not only by Native Americans uh, in the United States, but uh, the Maori and Aborigines in Australia and, and New Zealand. Uh, those, those practices don't cause death, as far as we know. The thing that, has, that causes death is the cigarette, and that's, uh, it's the most potent consumer product ever built. I mentioned there the liberalization of marijuana laws does seem to be that if you got your way, and perhaps you are getting your way in some respects, that the legalization or the legal availability of tobacco and of marijuana might actually cross over and tobacco might become more illegal than marijuana. Leaving aside whether that's right or wrong, do you, does Ash have any view on uh, smoking marijuana? We don't take a stance on, on marijuana. Uh, what we do say is that every product should be regulated according to its harm or potential harm. And I think you got it exactly right. We've been, we've been misregulating both of those products for, for decades. And we ought to, be, they ought to be crossing paths and going the other way to each other. You said that tobacco kills when used as intended. For people maybe who are not quite up on the science, can you give me a load on, on what the exact effects are? So it affects almost every uh, 
organ and system in your body. Uh, it causes a, a, almost every kind of lung, every kind of cancer. Period has been linked to tobacco use. Not that they're all caused only by tobacco use, but that they're an additional risk factor for everything. When we focus in on lung cancer, lung cancer was so rare before the modern cigarette was invented that when a case came before a doctor, he would he would go and get the local medical students and bring them to see it because they might never see another example in their careers. And if you look at a graph of lung cancer since the late 19th century, it's staggering, and it's almost completely caused by, by cigarettes. Uh, and cancer is actually the minority of deaths caused by tobacco use, cardiovascular disease, and a number of other ailments like COPD and, uh, um, and asthma – uh, are all caused by by tobacco. Uh, some studies are now showing that it's actually closer to two-thirds of long-term users of, of cigarettes will end up dying prematurely because of it. And they don't lose the, – on average, they lose 10 years of their lives. And that's that's a lot of life, life years lost. And in terms of tobacco use around the world, because I know you obviously you're based in the United States, but your website makes it clear that this is a global campaign – Obviously, in the US and probably in other uh, westernized countries, tobacco use, cigarette smoking is trending downwards quite sharply. Is that true around the world? It's, it's not. Um, there are certain places that it's still going upward at the very beginning of the epidemic. And uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa is probably the primary example of that. Uh, it wasn't until the 1990s that the tobacco industry started looking at, uh, at what we call low- and middle-income country markets uh, because they, they saw the writing on the wall for, for consumption in Western uh, industrialized countries. Uh, and, and, you know, they, and they saw it coming before anybody else did. Uh, mm-hmm. And they realized that when you have an addictive product, it doesn't really matter if people are poor. Once they're addicted, they will find a way to buy your products. And so they're still aggressively marketing in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but also Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, uh, Latin America. So there will be more smokers tomorrow than there are today. And that's, that's just a fact of the world. Now, in the United States, you're right, it's been trending down as it has been in several other Western countries. And that has actually allowed us to start having this conversation uh, back in 1964, when uh, Surgeon General Terry first released a report linking smoking to to health problems, mm-hmm. uh, he did he did so on a Saturday. He held a press conference, but he did it on a Saturday, which was something that was usually not done. And he did it because he assumed once the world learned that smoke that cigarettes were deadly, that they would their sale would have to be banned. And he was worried about the stock market crashing. So he wanted to do it, give people two days to think about it before they started selling their stock off. Uh, and he was a smoker. So he was very confused as to why we didn't immediately start taking action about this. And we couldn't because almost half of adults smoked. And politically, it's just impossible to tell half of your adult population, we're going to stop the sale of something that you're, do- you're using every day. But now that we've driven prevalence down, especially in certain areas of the United States, uh, to well below 10 or even 8%, then we start politically having this having this conversation. And that you alluded to it earlier, there is one city that's already done so in the United States, Beverly Hills, California last year, mm-hmm. did ban the sale of tobacco products. They have a phase-in approach. They're trying to help their retailers in the meantime. So uh, this coming January 1st, so almost a year from now, that will come into effect. But there's uh, several other cities right behind them. Manhattan Beach will vote on it uh, in February. Hermosa Beach, which is another neighbor of Beverly Hills, will do so later in the year. And there are at least uh, a dozen other cities that I know of in the United States that are, that are pushing to do this. And now there's some cities around the world that are looking at uh, different various policy options to get these things off the market. 
I'm not sure of exactly how the marijuana laws work in California, but it's relatively liberally available. That does sound like it's going to be, there's going to be a situation whereby you can open a shop selling marijuana, but not tobacco, which is, um, uh, ironic, perhaps. But- there, there is, there is some irony there. And I, I will point out for the, the, in California, when they, when they legalized the sale of marijuana, they gave every city the right to opt out. Mm-hmm. So Beverly Hills actually does not allow the sale of marijuana, and now they're not going to allow the sale of tobacco. But you're right. And there's no doubt in the future there will be some cities that allow marijuana sales but not not cigarettes. What's your view on vaping? Vaping has been the bugbear in the tobacco control world for, for several years. And I, I guess there's, there's two things I can say about it. We know that a lot of smokers want to quit, and many have tried and failed, even with nicotine replacement therapy. If they can move to e-cigarettes – they're almost definitely helping their health. There's that reducing the harm from their nicotine addiction. And so we think that they should be available for those, for those adult smokers. At the same time, addiction is a harm in itself, and children should not be getting addicted to nicotine, not only because they might move on to cigarettes, which studies are showing some do, but also because nicotine itself is, is bad for a developing brain. And so the epidemic that we're seeing in, in the United States on youth vaping is something we have to address. Uh, and and uh, nicotine, nicotine consumption is going up, isn't it? Absolutely. In aggregate, vaping and uh, smoking together. Yes, definitely more nicotine addiction now. And it's reversed a trend, uh, at least in the United States. You know, for, for 20 or 30 years, we've seen a steady uh, downward trend, not, not drastic, but a, st- a, nice, a nice downward trend in nicotine addiction. And now uh, that's spiking back up, um, particularly amongst children. So we are – the policy mix that allows for those two things, uh, adult access for smokers, but keeping it out of the hands of kids is, is difficult. Uh, we think that at least banning the candy flavors is a good start. In, in trying to reduce youth vaping. What's your view? We've reported on this on this podcast before about the parent company of Marlboro Cigarettes investing very heavily, particularly in the Jewel company. They're also doing things like co-marketing and co-branding so that wherever there's a, a Marlboro rack in a convenience store, part of that then is intended to be used to display Jewel products do you trust tobacco companies to distribute what were originally supposed to be uh, addiction mitigation products? Well, absolutely not. And the the, the purchase of 30% of Juul by, uh, by Altria, which is the owner in the United States of Marlboro, mm-hmm. uh, didn't, made, didn't surprise people that are in this field at all. Because if you look at the internal documents of the tobacco industry, which we've gotten a view of because of all the lawsuits, for at least 30 years, the, the tobacco industry doesn't call itself the tobacco industry. They call themselves the nicotine delivery industry. Mm-hmm. And cigarettes for a century were simply the cheapest way to deliver the nicotine and keep their customers hooked. Now they're finding that more and more regulations are making it difficult to market combustible cigarettes. And so they need to find an alternative way to get the nicotine into their customers and keep their customer base up. And so that's why they're moving heavily into vaping. And that's why we don't make a differentiation between those industries. It's all one big nicotine industry. Can I ask you, Chris, did you ever smoke? I actually didn't. Um, not for any particular moral reason other than my parents would have eviscerated me okay. if I had smoked because um, they, they in, lost family. In that case, I'll ask the question in, in a slightly uh, different way than if you had. Um, but this podcast is the, probably going to be the first one to go out in January for people listening uh, to the podcast who might be 
quitting or might be thinking of quitting. First of all, as far as you understand it, is quitting at a big milestone date like the 1st of January or the start of the year, is that a good idea? And secondly, what advice would you have for people doing that? Well, for the first question, I think there is a spike in quitting attempts in January for obvious reasons. Um, I don't know the stats on how many people succeed, uh, but most people that do successfully quit cigarettes take at least 10 tries to make it stick. There are very few that can just decide one day I'm going to be done and cold turkey, they're done. My advice to somebody who wants to quit is there are a lot of options out there. Uh, there's a quit line you can call that uh, run by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention mm-hmm. that will hook you up with a local uh, addiction specialist that can help you find ways to get over. It. And there are, you know, there's, 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 there's talking about it. There's the cold turkey. There's nicotine replacement therapies available out there. Even hypnosis has worked on some people. So don't give up and don't think that just because you failed the first time that you're, you're going to be an addict forever. Chris Bostick, Deputy Director of Policy at Ash Action on Smoking and Health. Thank you very much for talking to me. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Action on Smoking and Health at Ash.org. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon for me so far. I appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.